and that, that's going to work for us. And for those of you who are really, really into church calendars and um, seasons, as far as like, okay, this is like beginning of December, clearly we're going to have a message on Christmas, right? Well, we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And so this may not seem like a Christmas passage to you. Um, and if that's, if that's how you feel, that's fine. But just trust me, it'll get Christmassy real quick here. But go ahead and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 on your phones or in your Bibles, and we'll be taking a look at that. Now, as we're looking at this, one of the things we're focusing in on is this whole concept of what Paul is talking about in this passage is the whole concept of identity. And actually, what I'd like you to do right now is this. If you could do me the favor of taking uh, your friendship books um, on the outside aisle. Now, this is something we typically do during announcement time, but we're doing it here for a very important reason. Inside your friendship books, there's something for each and every one of you. It's not cash. Um, but what, what it is, is it's actually like little like uh, name tags, all right? And it, there's a Sharpie in there too. So what, here's what I want you to do. Go ahead and as you're passing the friendship book, go ahead and take out the, uh, the name tag sticker and write your name on it. Put that on your chest and that'll be great because uh, that's going to be something for something we're going to be doing a little bit later. And I would hate for any of you to be really humiliated and embarrassed without a name tag. So make sure you get one on and it's key important. Also, make sure that if anyone joins your row as we're going on to the service and they don't have one, for the love of that person, give them, give them a name tag, okay, and a Sharpie and that'll, that'll be fantastic. Also, if, uh, if this is your first time at NBC, you're, you're just visiting with us, we'd love to give you a gift. Um, and so if you could do me the favor of just going and putting your hand up, and uh, our ushers in the back will find you. If this is your first time, just have your hand up, and the ushers will give you a gift. Awesome. Right here. Very cool. Welcome. It's good to have you. All right. And, um, and actually, we're going to talk about why in the world do we give out gifts? Joyce, can I have one of those too? Is there enough? Okay, cool. Okay, one of the things that we do at NBC is we give out these gifts, and this is to make everyone who's a regular attender jealous. <laughs> but we give out these, uh, these goofy mugs and just some information about the church and stuff. And the reason that we do that is because we want, you know, it's very tough to get a good taste of a place once you just, you drop it in and you see a service, here's some music, and then you bail and you're out of there. Um, but what we hope is that it gives people an opportunity to think about what's going on at NBC a little bit more. Also, it does, it is intended to make everyone else that's regular attenders jealous because when people see these being given out, they say, Why, what's the deal? Like, I've been here for like 50 years. Why didn't I get a mug? I'm like, dude, the church is only like 33 years old. Relax. Um, and like, no, but I want a mug. And so, okay, okay, so here's what you do. If you want a mug, you just go over to the, the Labrie Cafe over there and you ask I'd li- for a mug and you say, can I buy a mug? And they'll say, yes, you can. And what they, and they'll say, they're $10. And you'll say, that's way too much money for a mug. And they'll say, you're right. It's actually way more than we spent on it. And you're like, well, what's the deal with that? And then they'll explain to you that for every um, one of those mugs that you buy for 10 bucks, that's buying two mugs, one for you and then one for a first-time visitor. And so whenever you see someone getting a, a, a mug that's a first-time visitor, someone else purchased that, which is pretty cool. So just in case you want to know. So identity is that, that whole concept of who am I? Now, if I asked you, what do you, how do you, how would you identify yourself? Like if you had to give kind of a, synop- <clears throat> a synopsis of some of the things that are identifiers about you, what would you say? What would be some of the things that you might mention? Just, and I'm going to ask the crowd. What, like if, if someone said, uh, hey, how's it going? And they're asking you questions about yourself. What would be some of the things that might come up in the conversation? Outgoing. Pardon me? Outgoing. Outgoing. Okay. So maybe a character trait. Okay. 
Okay, what's that? Husband? Okay, so like a, like a role in life, all right? What else? Pardon me? Occupation. That's an outpatient. I'm like, oh. <laughs> nope, nope, nope. This is an outpatient. I'm not going to talk to you too long. I'm going to be out of here very shortly. This is not an overnighter. Okay. Okay, occupation. Yeah. These are things that we identify ourselves with. In fact, every, every person does this every day of their life. They, they go through, what am I being identified with or by? And in fact, every movie and every story that we, we hear and watch and learn asks this question, who am I? That's what every story is intended to do, is to answer that question. You see it in the Christmas time. We see Macaulay Culkin's character coming up to be able to be identified with the fact that he, in fact, is somebody who is a part of a family. We see an elf, the fact that this is someone who's actually a son. Elf, Will Ferrell's character is a son. We see George Bailey in It's a Wonderful Life coming to the reality that he's, in fact, someone whose life matters. Contrary to popular opinion, contrary to what he thought everyone believed, his life actually matters. And how the Grinch stole Christmas. He was someone who actually cared. He actually had a heart. And then on top of that, we have, well, National Lampoons. Christmas Vacation. And in this, Clark Griswold realizes something. In fact, you, you know what the point of this movie is by the last sentence before the credits. And it's something that gets bypassed a lot of times by everything else that takes place in the movie. But this is the last scene. And right after this scene... Um, Clark's wife goes back inside and back to the house that's full of family and, and everything's finally come to a point of res- resolution. I mean, all of the lights on the outside house work except for the blinky ones and everything else is just coming together perfectly. And, and finally, he's in that final moment where it's just him and he's looking up at the sky and he utters one sentence giving you the whole picture of what the movie's about. And he says, I did it. I did it. And you realize that the whole movie was really, all the, all the efforts, everything that he was going through, he was running against the phantom of the, of the thing, the notion in his head is that he was not someone who could complete something. That his identity wasn't someone who failed, who messed up, who screwed up. But finally, finally it happened, finally it took place. It was not a failure. He did it. Now, when we identify ourselves and we, when we answer these questions of who am I, a lot of times, like we just did, we, we boil those down to a couple of qualifiers. One is my upbringing, family, kids, what I'm known for, or my job, or my role. Uh, upbringing could be like, you know, your, you know, your family that you grew up with, or your ethnic backdrop, your race, what geographic region you come from in the United States. If you, if someone introduces themselves and they have a, a, just an accent to them, you're like, oh yeah, it's a southerner. Or, or, or if, when I came here about, when I came to Illinois about 18, 20 years ago or so, um, when I would tell people that I'm from Southern California, I was identifying myself. I, yeah, I'm from Los Angeles area. And and immediately, Illinoisans would just go, okay. You know, that type of thing. Because automatically, I've identified myself. And and that, they they understand what that means. Whatever that means. Family, kids. um, This is something, you know, like, again, are are you single? Are you married? Are you divorced? Do you have kids? Do you not have kids? Can you not have kids? That's an identifier. What I'm known for. What, you know, what sports team do I root for? What do I, I, I pour my life into as far as my hobby? If I have nothing else to do, what am I, am I the person that walks in the room and I'm the funny guy? Or am I the depressing sibling? Am I the one who always starts fights? Am I the, the angry drunk? What is it that I'm known for? People, and people will know you for these things. And they, they identify you as that. Your job, your role, you know, where you work. One of the first things when we, if, if you're an adult, when you're talking to someone that comes up in conversation is where do you work? What do you do? One of the first things that you're asking kids as they're growing up, what do you want to be when you grow up? Not what do you want to do, what do you want to be 
And by that, we're asking, what job do you want to do? But we're asking them, what do you want to be? <laughs> Which is kind of a sad question. But we identify what we do with who we are, and we identify all these qualifiers as where we get our value from. They're not merely a descriptor. They're where we draw our value from, and we know this because these are things that we guard like idols. If somebody talks about your mom that's not in your family, things get heated pretty quick. If somebody talks about your, your, your you know, racial backdrop, ethnic origin, your region that you come from, yes, I am from Southern California, deal with it. You get a little heated, and people start, don't, you don't know me, you don't know me. If, if someone talks about one of your kids to you, hey, I just need to let you know, uh, Mike has been having some issues lately. He, um, he's been punching some kids and lighting things on fire. <laughs> yeah, he's 14. So, are you saying I'm a bad parent? Are you saying I'm a bad parent? What, we, and all of a sudden, things get heated. Um, what I'm known for, why is it that after Bears and Cowboys games that things get a little dicey? I don't know these people, but they're wearing a different jersey. And so, we're going we're gonna to bring out blades, you know? I mean, that, that's what, what I'm known for is something that we can, we can absolutely guard. and Because what we, what we do with each one of these things is we say, my value comes from this. And any statement you make to me about this is interpreted by me as a value statement, positively or negatively. So if you say something about my upbringing, I'm reading that as you're diminishing me. Or if you praise something about my upbringing, I feel amazing. In my job or what I'm known for, people might know you for something that you just do really, really well, which is great, and you're ecstatic at that until somebody else comes along that's a little bit better than you, and all of a sudden the attention starts to go to them. And then you go from being ecstatic to being in the garbage, and you feel depleted and awful. Why? Because it's awful that someone's better than you? No, because that's where your value came from. That was your identity. You were the best. You were this person, and all of a sudden you aren't anymore. When this becomes our whole world, all of a sudden we start to realize why it is that people's expectations are so messed up. Our expectations are that this is what's going to fulfill us, our identity, and these things. Whenever we put our value in things or people outside of God, we end up deficient. What, who we are was never intended to be rooted in who we are. Who we, let me say that again, because that sounds counterintuitive, but who we are as people, as individuals, was never intended to be rooted in who we are or our perception of who we are. Instead, it's, it, we were intended to be rooted in, in three other things. First off, we're, our identity is intended to be rooted in whose we are. Take a look at that passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And in this, Paul is uh, dealing with this, uh, the reality that his identity has been shifted. And not just his, but any Christian their identity has totally done a, done a 180. Reason being is this. Paul's a guy who um, was, as a Pharisee, his whole perspective was to be as righteous and, and, and ritualistic and, and, and honestly, a, as tight a follower of God as he possibly could be. But over time, that became more and more of an external thing. Are you looking good? Are you doing the right stuff on the outside? Are people giving you accolades for stuff that you're doing? And Jesus said that these Pharisees were, are like whitewashed tombs. They look great on the outside, beautiful, but they're dead on the inside. And so Paul, as a former, you know, recovering Pharisee, says this, verse, uh, starting in verse 16 in chapter 5. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, 
He's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. He starts off there uh, pointing out the reality that because of the fact that Jesus came into his life, something changed. He used to be that guy who was looking at the outward perspective and drawing value on this. Are you doing this stuff? Okay, you're valuable. You're not doing this? You're not valuable. Oh, are you, you, you look this way. You must be valuable. Oh, you don't look this way? You must not be valuable. And he's saying, we don't look at people, or, or you've done this stuff. You're no longer valuable, worthless. Oh, you've done this stuff? You must be valuable to God. He must be blessing you. And he's saying, we don't look at that anyway. We don't look at people that same way. That's a worldly perspective. Because Jesus came into my life, of all people, I can't look at people the same way anymore. Because I know how self-centered and self-absorbed my self-righteousness was. And now, because of that, I look at everyone totally differently. The old is gone. The old way is gone. The old perspective is gone. And now what I find my identity is not in what I've done or what I'm doing, but instead of whose I am. That's where my identity comes from. That's where my security comes from. It's from him. Okay, remember I told you this was going to get Christmassy? Okay, here we go. In Isaiah 7, verse 14 Therefore, the the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name what? Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. This is the phenomenal thing about what Jesus did. When he came as a man, when the incarnation took place, we have God identifying with man, not not just reflecting or having a relationship with man, but God identifying with man to the point of becoming a man. He identified with man by becoming man so that mankind could identify with God. We could not without that. We could not in any way, shape, or form. But because of what Jesus did when he came as a baby and he grew to an adult and he died on the cross and he rose again, he did something by being with us. He was identifying with us so we could identify with God. Paul elaborates on this by saying that it didn't stop there in the manger. He says, I've been crucified. Paul's saying this, I've been crucified with Christ. So it's no longer I who live, but Christ who who lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So Paul's saying, you know, my whole world has been revolved around all this external stuff and I was good at it. And people came up and gave me high fives about what I was doing and I was good at it. And I realized that instead of bringing me closer to the Lord, instead of my, my outward identity was in so much in those external things that people would praise me for, I all of a sudden became hard-hearted to God and stubborn to God that I could even recognize that Jesus was the Messiah. He says in another passage, and he uses far stronger language than I'm going to use, but he says, when I think about all those things that I did that people held up and said, this is awesome, you're so religious, you're so religious, you're doing such the right thing, I look at all that as crap compared to knowing Jesus, compared to the grace that Jesus has given me. This stuff is crap. And if I keep on holding on to this, God's like, what are you doing that's, that's not what you should be holding on to. That's, that's nothing. It's garbage. You, there's no use for it. And yet I made my whole life about this stuff. I made everything I did about this stuff. And Jesus broke me. And when he broke me, all of a sudden I realized how crap that was and how my life instead is following the God who is with me, the God who is leading me. And my life is identified and found instead of me in him. Amen. And so that, that's something that all, we need to understand that our, our first and foremost, our identity is in whose we are, not, not me. Secondly, it's not only whose we are, but it's who we are. If we take a look at the, the reality of what Paul continues talking about, he, he not only says this is an individualistic thing, but it's something that impacts you broader than that. 
He says in verse 17, and then we'll jump into uh, 18 and 19. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the whole world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Paul is writing a letter. He's not having a a journal session in his diary. He's writing a letter to a group of people. And what he's saying is that this truth is not only true, the old is gone, the new has come in you. It's that, that's not where it stops. It actually, re- you recognize the fact that he has broadened this out to bring all these people in, all these diverse people into this, this mess of people that are reconciled and redeemed by Jesus. He says in, in another passage, he puts it this way. He says, so in Christ Jesus, you're, you're all children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. There's neither Jew or Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now, this statement by Paul was just like, man, it's like an atomic bomb in what, they're, what his listeners are, are trying to understand. Because everything about how they identified themselves was broken down into those categories. Jew, Gentile, male, female, slave, free. These were categories that people could identify and judge a person's value on. And Paul's saying, yeah, I used to do that, but now we don't do that anymore. Jesus wrecked that. He's, he's totally just, he's cannonballed that whole perspective. Uh, one con- one uh, scholar believes that at least one scholar believes that this is actually a rewritten Pharisaical prayer, a prayer that Paul would have known and his buddies would have prayed. The prayer that would say this, Lord, I want to thank you so much that I am a Jew and not a Gentile. I am Abraham's seed. I'm one of your, your chosen people, and I'm not one of those pagans who are out there who don't know you. I want to thank you so much that I am free. I'm not a slave or bound by any man. I am a free man. And I want to thank you so much for making me male and not female because it would stink if I was a female. Something to that effect. And what Paul does in this passage is he kind of like takes this common prayer that he knew and he subverts it. He, he changes it. And he says, that was my prayer. That was my perspective. But because of Jesus, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Those, those old school ways of defining people are over. Those old ways of keeping people out or at arm's distance from God are done with. And he's opened the doors and brought in the reality that anyone who comes to Jesus, anyone who experiences the grace of Christ, anyone can be saved. And that saved group of people all of a sudden is gathered together. So who we are is a diverse bunch of kids who were brought back and bought back to our long lost father. When we come here on the weekends, if, if you're looking around at believers in this room, you should be looking around at a bunch of people who are like a bunch of uh, people who've been adopted and recognize that we all have a common father. Just recognize, look, man, I, I didn't know I had this many siblings. Look at these people. All these people are my brothers and sisters. I had no idea. We don't hang out together all the time. We don't listen to the same music. As I've said before, we don't vote the same way. We don't go to the same type of movies. We have different convictions about different things. We have different perspectives on doctrinal issues. But there's something that unites this group in spite of that. This is a diverse group of kids that are united, not by our commonality, but by Jesus. 
And that, that's amazing because what that means then is that we are part of this ginormously large family. And it's new. It's a new family. It's brand, I, okay, I'm the oldest of five kids. How many of you had, had like five kids in your family? Okay, how many people had more than five kids in your family? Woo. Okay, well, you know what it's like then, walking through the mall with your family. Embarrassing. <laughs> you know what it's like sitting down at the table when your dad starts laughing and everyone else starts laughing and you're the, you're the teenager in the whole group. You're like, oh, please. <laughs> Remember we were talking about coming soon? Come now. We're part of a large family, and just like any other large family, we could be embarrassing. The thing that that keeps us together is not not the phenomenal reality of how wonderful we are or how perfect we have been, but in spite of all that, it's, it's how amazing Jesus is. And we're part of the family. We're part of the family that he leads, that he's purchased, that he's paid for. Now, in the early, in the in the New Testament, the church was not something where you had gatherings like this all the time. In fact, more, more often than not, churches were just basically these small house church things, 10 to 25 people or so. Small groups of people that were able to study scriptures and pray for one another and share with one another in need. That's what we see in our real life groups, and that's why that is so important. If you, if you really are someone who wants to grow in your faith, coming here on the weekends is awesome, but, but it's, it's not going to take you into the type of walk and journey alongside other believers that, that something like that would. But there's value in what happens here on the weekend. I mean, when we gather together, this is important. But we need to make sure that we recognize that we're not showing up to go to see a movie. Where we're just kind of taking it in and enjoying the message, enjoying the music and the announcements. Are, they, they're lame, but we're enjoying every other part of it. That's not what we're here for. What we're here for is to recognize that, that this place is a place where we gather together as a family, a larger family. This is like the weekly reunion of the believers that, that under, are under Manuka Bible Church. We don't even have the goofy t-shirts like reunions have for families, but we're close enough. We gather together week after week, but we don't know each other very well. In fact, you're probably sitting generally where you normally generally sit. Some of you are getting crazy and you're like, no, I'm going to go up two rows this week. <laughs> but whatever the case would be is oftentimes we get into a rut where we're here week after week after week. Now, for those of you who are first-time visitors that were handed out those cool mugs, I'm just giving you a heads up. You're going to get a letter in the mail this week, and it's going to be from me, and it's going to look like a form letter, because it is. Um, but I did sign it, and I, but it's going to come with a little card in it, and it's going to say in that card, hey, what did you notice first? What did you like the best? What did you like the least? Those, and so we, we're, we're interested in, in what people's first impressions are uh, of the place. And I got to be honest, when, those, when Joyce has those on my desk um, each week, I go, I look at that card and I go right to one question. Which question? What do you like least? Because I'm neurotic. I don't know. But I'm like, just like, oh, come on, come on, go, go. And then I read it. Now, here's the thing. When I read through, and then I read through the rest of the, the stuff and I read and just kind of get a sense of where, where people are or what, what they were liking or not liking, et cetera. Oftentimes, most of the time, we get a response of, of something that says something like, what did you like the best? I liked how warm this place was, how friendly people were around the cafe. I liked that I was spoken to and and people really reached out to me. That's about 50% of the time. And so I've got that card and it's from that particular week, whatever. And then I'll pull the next card. And the next card will say, and when I jump right down to what did you like least? This place is one of the coldest places I've ever been. No one was friendly to me. No one said hi to me. I came in, I left. No one said anything. 
And I'm like, you guys were in the same service. How did this happen? And the reality is it happened because we're a, bunch, we're, we're a family. And families make mistakes. And families, you know, we, we're not, we don't hit it out of the park every week. We don't. And a lot of times we need to work on things. And one of the things I want us to, as a church to work on is the recognition that this is a family that's gathering here. Anyone that's a follower of Jesus in this room is, is part of that family. And anyone that's a guest is someone who's being welcomed in to get a chance to eat with the family and spend time with the family. That's, that's awesome. It's epic. And that is why you have name tags on today. What we're going to do is this. Usually, we give you an opportunity to um, greet each other, which gives you about a good 15 seconds to pivot, 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 sit down before anyone else says hello. What we're going to do today is we're going to make each of your regions missionaries, okay? That means this region over here, I want you, when I say to, to get up and start to make your way over to this side of the room, greeting as many people as you can along the way. Likewise, over, you, over here, you guys in the middle, you guys can go anarchy ball and just go everywhere, okay? <laughs> but here's what, I want, here's, here's what you're doing. I want you to go up and I want you to greet these people and, you, and you, you're going to know their name. You know why? Because they have name tags. And, and if you're like really feel awkward, here's a question that you can ask. Hey, how's it going? Uh, okay, Ronald, great. Uh, my name's Errol. Um, how long have you been coming here? And they might say, this is my first week. Or they might say, I've been coming here for 50 years. And then you could say, you're a liar. Because <laughs> the church is not that old. But I want you to go ahead and I want you to meet by name. Okay, you got to say their name. As many people as you can. And we're going to give you an inappropriate amount of time to do that. Okay? Now we have bouncers at the door to make sure you don't leave. <laughs> so don't do that. But I want you to go ahead and do that. And then we're going to gather back together. And we're going to finish this up. Okay? Go for it. All right, all right. I'm liking this. This is cool. One of the things that people were saying, uh, I ran into someone, can't remember who said it, but they said, I didn't realize, oh, it was James Gonda. He's like, I didn't realize how many Eds we have in this church. If your name is Ed, could you just raise your hand? Okay, Eds, you not, oh, there you are. Very good. Well, Ed, welcome. All of you. How was that? That was good, yeah? All right. What if, what if we did that every week where you just did it? Like if you came in here and you sat in your normal row or you're getting really, you know, crazy and you went two rows up. And you said, you know what, I'm looking across the room and I have no clue who that guy is. Or I think, I, I think that guy's name's Ed, probably is. <laughs> and what if you actually went over and just touched base? Hey, I remember when, when Pastor Errol was doing that weird, remember that weird thing? Yeah. And he didn't even wear a name badge. How hypocritical. But, but I remember meeting you. I can't remember your name. And then you get their name. And then each week, each week you kind of just touch base. Because a lot of times people kind of hover around some of the same services. We go to different services for sure, but sometimes that, and then that all of a sudden creates this room from being a spectator arena to being a place where family starts happening again and again and again. And if you see someone, you're like, I know that person's got to be new because they've got a mug. <laughs> I'm just going to go up and talk to them and just say hi to them. 
And what if that was just kind of our DNA? Let's make it that, okay? Because this is what we are. This is not just like, let's just, you know, cutesy talk about us being a family of God, but let's actually live it, all right? Let's pull that off. Because of Jesus, because of the incarnation, because he, in fact, is Emmanuel, God with us, we were, were able to sink our identity into whose we are, into who we are, and then finally, who we are, what we're doing. What, what, what does that mean? Like, what, what does that push us into being? How does, how does that define our life? Take a look at the last verse there in verse 20. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That means that because of Jesus, there's some action that's taking place. The gospel's working in our life. That God identified with us, and now we're identifying with him, and other people are picking up on that. And that brings all this massive amount of purpose and joy and meaning in a life that otherwise is just built and based on defining my life as being valuable because I do this, this, and this, and this. I'm identified as this, this, and this. That are going to die when I die. But instead saying, no, 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 my purposes, the purposes of my life are built as I'm an ambassador of Christ. God is, it's like he's making his case through you and through me. If you look at the Westminster Shorter Catechism, it, it starts off, it communicates this in it. It says, what is the chief end of man? What is the purpose of humanity? What is, what is, what is this, us, all about? Inside here and outside here, what's the chief end of man? And the chief end of man is to glorify God. But then it finishes the sentence. I love that. That would have been enough. You could put a period at the end of that sentence to glorify God and enjoy him forever. When Jesus comes into your life, that starts a process of you not following this ritualistic chore, but instead you are walking in a relationship with him that is every day recognizing he's, who's, he's my identification. He's who I am. And because of that, that leads to the things that I do. A.W. Tozer um, was just speaking about that, that aspect of the Westminster Shorter Catechism when he said this, God formed us for his pleasure and so formed us that we as well as he can in divine communion enjoy the sweet and mysterious mingling of kindred personalities. He meant us to see him and live with him and draw our life from his smile. But we've been guilty of that foul revolt of which Milton speaks when describing the rebellion of Satan and his hosts. We have broken with God. We have ceased to obey him or love him and in guilt and fear have fled as far as possible from his presence. The whole work of God in redemption is to undo the tragic effects of that foul revolt and to bring us back again and to write an eternal relationship with himself. This required that our sins be disposed of satisfactorily, that a full reconciliation be effected and the way open for us to return again into conscious communion with God and to live again in the presence as before. The thing that was robbed of us in Eden, that, that relationship with God because of our rebellion and sin, Jesus has begun the restoration process of. In him, we are made new. As Paul says, the old is gone, the new is coming. So now that the new is here, we're walking in that. We're living in that. And that brings us the joy of following him. That means that who we're defined of, defined by, who we are, well, we're a bunch of people who enjoy God through Jesus. We have the ability to walk every day in the enjoyment of the relationship God has graciously given to us that we couldn't earn or, or pay back. We're also the people who enjoy God's family, even when they're embarrassing, even when we wish that we could delete members of our family. Have you ever tried that in your own family? Maybe they just won't come this year. Maybe they just won't come this year. But they do. You can't delete them. They're there. 
They're your brother, your sister, your parents, whatever. We need to recognize that we are a people that are part of this group of, of people that gather together in our brokenness and need of Jesus, recognizing that he's made us whole. That we have a level playing field. And so when we look around this room, we don't do those worldly def- definitions or judgments on people. Instead, we look at all these people that Jesus paid for that are coming home, that God has made new. We're also those who see God's hand in using us to build his kingdom here through his bride, the church. You guys are our church that are actively involved. When we told you about how there's 150 kids that we want to buy presents for, 150 kids of people in our food pantry, some of which come to this church and some of which you don't, some people who you'll never meet again and you don't know their kids, you don't care about their kids, your kids may not play with their kids, but you still have that opportunity to to touch base with them and, and reach out the generous grace that God's given to you and just helping them have a gift. And within one weekend, you guys took all the stuff. Usually, when we've done this in the past with the angel tree, it takes us two or three weeks. And you guys sold the place out right away because you saw the need and you said, well, that's who I am. That's because of what he did for me. Because he's done that for me, that changes the way that I am. And I respond differently. You are all these things. And as scripture points out, like we were talking about last week, you are, in spite of the reality and the conditions around you, in spite of your insecurities, you are an overcomer. You're someone who is able to go through the thick of things, the thick of suffering. And as we talked about last week, sometimes we don't feel like an overcomer. And we look throughout Revelation and we see how, how that is such an emphasis of John over and over again. And this is something that we need to recognize is, is our call to re- re- realize that because Jesus has made us new, he's, this is part of what he's done in our life as well. This is part of our identity, that we're, we're one who overcomes. Joel Sanders reminded me this week of another passage that we didn't highlight in the message last week. Uh, we talked about it about a year ago when we were talking about the whole concept of what God's doing, the power of Christ. And, and he reminded me of, of Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12 says that this about the church. And talk about the church in contrast with the work and, and effort of Satan and his, his whole purposes. It says that, the, the, that that church, that they overcame him. And John doesn't finish the sentence by saying they overcame him because they always got things right or because they had great kids programs or because the music's pretty decent. It says that they overcame him. How? By the blood of the lamb. How, did the, how does the church overcome Satan? The church overcomes Satan by identifying themselves with the very person who came to identify with us. By the blood of the lamb. And again, John could have put a period at the end of that sentence, but God inspired him to write something else. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Which means the way that we are overcomers is by recognizing that what Jesus did was a fact. But it wasn't a fact that was just a fact in and of itself. It was a fact that leads into an everyday reality in my life. That's my testimony. He did that for me. That gives me the ability to have the most open and honest perspective about my life. I can communicate openly the things that I, that I, that I struggle with, that, that are difficult in my life, because these are no longer my definers. That's my definer. And this stuff is his story of reconciling me and bringing me into, and sanctifying me and bringing me into a person that's more and more like Jesus. That's my story. So no matter what you've done, that's like not something that you don't dig a hole in your backyard and you throw it in and you cover it up over. It's something that you actually could say, this is ugly, I'm embarrassed, I'm humiliated about this, or that I did this, or I thought this, or whatever. But you, like Paul, could say, yeah, and that's my story. And he saved me in spite of that. 
and he's still working in me. He has to kick me to the curb. And because of that, he's my identity. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. How did these end time people avoid just falling prey to like through the suffering, just saying, you know what? Following Jesus is not worth it. I'm suffering too much. I'm gonna die if I claim Christ. How is it that they didn't care? It's because their identity wasn't in their life or their livelihoods. Their identity was in Jesus. And so when we come back to that initial circle that we, we talked about, all these things are important things for sure, but there's a greater identity that we have. When you come, when you come to Jesus, all of a sudden, when Jesus draws you in and he saves you, all of a sudden you look and you say, yeah, my upbringing, my backstory as far as my family and my, my nation of origin, all that's important stuff. That's not something that you just wash out. That's important. But the greater reality is that I have, I'm part of a redeemed history that God has grafted me into this, this family of, that, that's, that goes far beyond the McFaddens and the Shaws that got married together and had Errol. That, that my story is bigger than that. And my fa- the way that I interact with my wife and my kids is incredibly important. Providing for them, loving them, ministering to them. Scripture has got a lot to say about that. But at the end of the day, my family, my wife and my kids will disappoint me just as much, or maybe not just as much, but like I disappoint them. And if my whole value is built and based on my family and my kids, they're an idol. And I will be a disappointed individual. At the end of the day, I realize that my family and kids are important. But I have a greater family, a family of believers that I'm thanking, thanking God that my wife and my kids are a part of. But that's, that's, that's the ultimate family, the family that's going to transcend this, this world. Yeah, what we're known for is important. But Paul talks about how when we're following Jesus, all of a sudden we're known by other things. We're like actually known by the fruits of the Spirit, the things that that the Holy Spirit has done in us, and the the gifts of the Spirit, the things that he's equipped us with to build the church. You have been given gifts, if you're a believer, to do something. Don't put it on a shelf. That's something where all of a sudden you recognize, man, God has given me an amazing amount of purpose. And my job, again, if you've been out of work for any amount of time, you know how important a job is, but your job at one day, there's going to come a day sometime in the future where you're no longer going to work. It's not going to be because you're retired. It's going to be because you're dead. You won't have a job or have to worry about a job then. But there will be something that you've done on this planet that will transcend your death. The fact that God has put inside of you that second part of what overcomes Satan, the blood of the lamb and our testimony. My job on this planet, above and beyond my occupation and vocation, is to be a teller of my story. The story that Jesus reconciled this. That Jesus came in and redeemed this and he did the same thing for you. That Jesus come into this world to make things new. That's my identity. That's, that's, that's where I draw my identity from. There's a little kid, a family um, that used to go to this church um, named the Everett's, Ben and Annie Everett, and they had a little boy named Gareth, and they moved away. Gareth has uh, cystic fibrosis. And if you know anything about cystic fibrosis, you know that parents whose child has been given that um, from the docs as, as, as this is what your child has. No, they know that they don't, they're not guaranteed a whole long life with this kid. They're not guaranteed to see this kid graduate from high school. There's, there's not a whole lot of hope that they're going to watch this kid walk down the aisle and get married. But they do know that there's going to be a lot of hospital visits and a lot of difficult, difficult nights. And, Gar- and I, I thought about Gareth because Annie Everett um, on, you know, TimeHop, the, the app TimeHop, posted on Facebook two years ago, Pastor Dave and I visited Gareth when he was up in, in Chicago before they moved. 
And I was like, oh my gosh, that's so cool. So I was trying to see what's going on in Gareth's life, and he's doing pretty good. And then uh, on Annie's um, Facebook wall, she has a, a video she posted of Gareth saying his prayers before he went to bed. And she videotaped him saying his prayer. Because Gareth's little friend, this is the other reality if you have cystic fibrosis and you're in a community of people who are trying to walk through that reality together, is that your son or daughter will have a lot of friends that will die. And um, his little friend Kenna passed away and she, she knew Jesus. And so Gareth is laying there in bed and he's praying to God. He says, God, and she had just passed away. And he said, God, I, I pray that you help Kenna have a great day in heaven today. And then he pauses and he says, God, you know, not everybody knows this, but heaven isn't the end of our life. Heaven is the beginning of our life. Heaven's not the end. It's the beginning. As Christians, we recognize that our identity is not built and based on things that are going to die with us. Our identity is drawn from things that transcend death and continue on. And if you read through Jesus, everything Jesus says, and Paul communicates as well, as well as John, the things that you recognize, what they're communicating is your identity is in something greater than just living and dying on this planet. It's bigger than that. Is your life pouring into who you really are? Or is it taking away from who you really are? Let's stand for prayer. Lord Jesus, we know that the Christmas story is more than lights and decoration, uh, more than uh, a cultural representation of just a time of year where we give things to each other. But we recognize that the greatest gift was given in your son. The fact that you became man and identified with us to bring us back to you is astounding. And when we think about the darkest parts of our hearts and our minds and of this world, we still can't believe that you did it, but you did it. And because of that, we have reason to praise the fact that God is with us and that you still are. Lord, we lift up our hearts and our songs to you. We pray that in your name. Amen.